0: On today's show, we are getting to know know. Brian. But first, a word from today's sponsors. Andre Psyche is the freelance creator extraordinaire. Someone who makes music, poetry, art, clothing, and lives to make others feel good. Search him up on any social media. It's Andre Psyche. That's P-S-Y-C-H-E the next time you are looking to add some creative stimulation to your social media circle. Patreon.com helps creators like me earn a monthly income that will be put towards podcast expenses. Support the Getting to Know You Pod's creative endeavors through Patreon for as little as $2 a month. There are all sorts of costs that I had no fucking idea about associated with posting podcasts not to mention the need for equipment and production. So dear listeners, if you've enjoyed getting to know any of our guests or just want to help keep the pod going, go to our Patreon. The links in the description and your support of the Getting to Know You pod is very much appreciated. Two bucks too much? Here are three free ways to help. Get your thumbs ready. One, push the subscribe button on whatever app you're listening to the Getting to Know You pod on. Did that? Thank you. Two, friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on your social media like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Go ahead, open those apps, click away if you haven't already. Thanks again. Three, go to Apple, write a review. The internet tells me this might be the most important and impactful. So thank you. Your support, dear listener, whether it's with your thumbs, through our Patreon, or ideally both, is greatly appreciated. And now, getting to know you. Hello. Getting to know you. Getting to know all about you. I'm going to do a terrific
1: show today. Getting to like you. Getting to hope you like me. Because I'm good enough. Getting to know you.
0: Putting it my way.
1: I'm smart
0: enough. You are precisely and doggone it. And Brian is literally making the world a better place. Thank you, Brian, for your work and for uh, scheduling time to come on the pod, man. Letting people get to know about you and probably more honestly about like your projects, uh, passion projects. I, uh, I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, we appreciate you, Sean, and the fact that you take all this time to promote things around the world that are making a difference. And, um, that you do that on top of a full-time schedule of teaching is pretty amazing.
0: Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. I don't, well, um, it's interesting. I guess we'll see how long just a little me, like have the conversations edit, find right, like, I always wonder why do you do this thing as a hobby? And then I come back to being like, you get to hear cool stories, like what you're doing, like, I don't know if I don't have this podcast, I don't know if I have the excuse. Unless apparently I'm a waiter at like a golf tournament <laughs> to like, <laughs> to hear about the crazy, amazing things that you're doing and the experiences of your life. And when I think about that, I'm like, yeah, it's totally worth it. Just the perspectives you get to gain. And like, I don't know, it's, it's different. It's nice. You know, it's almost like a position of not power, but access, which um, I'm enjoying.
1: It's awesome, and I think you know. For me, the exciting thing about being on your podcast is that you know somebody somewhere is going to hear this, and it's my hope that it will inspire them to do more, that they can do greater things than they can ever imagine, and they can actually do things that make an impact, you know, and a difference in in not just one life, but in a lot of lives. And we'll we'll get to those. Uh, principles that I believe that can help, uh, someone really make maximum impact, uh, through as we talk about it on the podcast.
0: Yeah. It, you had said it and I, we spoke maybe a week ago for, a, uh, almost an hour and it was, um, something where, and I, I don't want to jack up the <laughs> saying too bad, but it was something like people know how there are problems. People know that there are problems, but they don't try to like simplify them enough to make the solutions or they don't find the time to get the actual solutions. And I thought that was such a basic principle that you were talking about, but it seems, I'm thinking of my day-to-day, it's like, yeah, dude, people do like gripe a lot about certain situations, but then it's boots on the ground, hands in the dirt, action that can be done, doesn't seem to get done. It's just like, you complain, gas prices, oh, it sucks, and it's like, okay, well, who's the person solving it, right? Like, what is the actionable step to change this thing that is wrong? Let me pause you for a second, Brian. You might have hit something. You muted on your reply. Oh, no, really? Okay. Now you're back on. Maybe the mic got covered?
1: Me, I mean, that's what it is. Okay, yeah. So, um, you know, unfortunately, I think so many of our so called solutions in the world are uh, they don't look at the root causes. You know, they look at the situation, they look at the results, and then they start tackling the results rather than looking at the root causes and then they come up with a one-off solution, you know, or, you know, but it's not, it's not systemic Yeah. and if it's not systemic, nothing changes, you know? Um, and that's why our government keeps making the same mistakes. That's why history keeps repeating itself over and over again, because we don't learn the lessons that if it's not systemically changed, it's not going to change at all. And, and ultimately we have to change. You know, our behavior has to to change, you know, if we're ever going to, you know, change the world. And um, and and also, I think, you know, we we're afraid to tackle the problems that are too big. You know, we just go tackle smaller ones when in reality, you know, we've got to go after the big ones and we and we have to be willing to to think out of the box. I mean, a guy like Steve Jobs, he just, you know, basically took a few things that were never connected together before to come up with something different, you know? And, and that's, that's the thing we have to be willing to connect things that were never connected before to create something that was never created before, you know, because doing the same things over and over again, well, we know what that is expecting the same expecting different results. That's what they call insanity, but that's what we keep on doing,
0: you know? So get into your corporation and the purpose of, what you're doing, I guess not just well right now in the Philippines, but hopefully wherever it's wanted,
1: yes, and you know you know what? um I also want to challenge in, in this whole thing, not about only our corporation and the, and the initiatives that we are uh, that that we're promoting and and accomplishing in the Philippines and then later on in other parts of Southeast Asia. but
0: you covered your mic again, my friend.
1: <laughs> oh no okay okay sorry so yeah so as, as we look at you know before i introduce like the company and what we're doing um it's kind of a crazy journey of how we got here and uh i, w- I want to go back and just kind of give a little bit of an overview of my own history yeah to see how to see how i how i got to this place right because um at the core of everything that i want to say tonight as well is that every life matters and the majority of lives on the planet, like never ever reach even maybe 90% or, or, or 20% of their potential. You know, most people don't even ever reach their potential because they don't even know what they're here on the planet to do. And they're born, they just live a life of survival and they die never having discovered what their passions were, what they, you know, what kind of impact and change they wanted to make on the world, the, on the planet and they just get a job that they don't really like and they kind of live for the weekends <laughs> and and add to the problem rather than the solutions and to me the greatest tragedy is a life that never really was right you know never never you know people are surviving they're stuck in survival mode rather than you know really living and making a life and then making a difference so I go back to my own life and, you know, I grew up in a situation where I had been physically and sexually abused as a kid. Um, I felt alone much of the time and I'm grateful in that, you know, rather than become an abuser myself, somehow it imparted in me a, a, a compassion for other people and an empathy that I wanted to dedicate my life to do things that would change the world so people didn't have to go through what I went through. Right. And, and to, and to be able to, to feel what other people are are, are going through and then be there for them and figure out what I can do to make, to make the world better. Um, and in the process, you know, I would just kind of wake up every day and say, uh, all right, what am I going to learn today? And who am I going to meet today that I can learn from or that I can help? And where am I supposed to go? you know, just kind of like a blank slate every day, you know, instead of saying, Oh, here's where I am. I'm stuck doing this. No, but really being open to what God, the world, the universe is going to bring to me if I, if I was open to it. Right. And, and I just began, you know, to, to meet people that, you know, inspired me to do something for those who had been exploited and, and my part, you know, where I was in my lifetime, the people that I saw that were being the most exploited were indigenous peoples, right? Because, I mean, look at our own country, the United States. If you get a chance to go up to Oklahoma City, uh, recently, about a, a year ago, not even a year ago, a museum was opened up called First Americans Museum. And it, it shows how when Europeans came to the United States, there were about 18 million indigenous peoples. And when they finished taking over this land, there are about a million people left. A million. I mean, that's insanity. Like, how how can we think that that's okay, right? But that's the way it is all over the world. I mean, I lived in a former Soviet Union where the indigenous peoples on in the tundra were being abused and exploited because Gazprom and the Russian government wanted all the gas and oil in the land where they lived, right? I work in the Philippines where 97% of the primary forest has been cut down and denuded because of Greek Companies, you know... United States companies, European companies, Philippine companies all paid off to the Philippine government to get the rights to cut down all the trees that, that were on the indigenous people's lands, right? And so left them without trees. Then mining companies would come in. So you watched all these things happening and realized that, you know, so many people in the world are being exploited. And that's where my passions, you know, uh, were. You know, when I was just fresh, fresh out of college. Can so I, I ended
0: up. Yeah. Ask, well, I'm curious to. Turn the negative into such a positive. How did the focus on indigenous people come about? Were you in some sort of course in college? Were you just like a history buff that you connected with them? Was it regional, like you lived around that area?
1: No, it's a, it's a good question. I was, I was, I was in college, and every once in a while they'd have like you know special speakers come and you know give us like kind of a TED Talk challenge, right? And one guy came by, and he was just focus on the indigenous peoples and talked about how many indigenous peoples there were in the world that were being exploited and, you know, and um, could we do anything about it? And, and so I studied, you know, linguistics, culture, anthropology, theology, education, and it all came together. And I thought, well, you know what? I want to go to Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Philippi- or Southern Philippines, where there are like hundreds of language groups and see what I can do to make a difference. I just was freshly, I'm nearly married. I mean, I was just like a young kid right out of college. newly married. My wife and I are a little baby. Went to the Philippines. Ended up studying Tagalog, the language of the Philippines, the national language. Moved to Mindanao. And ended up being that, you know, Mindanao language is Cebuano, And it actually spoken in the island of Cebu, all throughout the Visayan Islands and Mindanao. Probably about 40, 50 million people spoke it. It had never been completely analyzed. And so my first job that was assigned to me in the nonprofit that I was with was to study Cebuano and analyze the grammar and write, you know, the grammar course so that foreigners could come in and learn the language and do something that helped, you know, impact the country. So that took about two years to dig in to just a fresh language, figure it out linguistically. In the end, we ended up with 96 forms of one verb. I mean, that's insane. 96 forms of one verb. But what I didn't realize is that I was being shaped. Not only was I shaping their grammar and writing their grammar for you know people to come behind me and learn it and be able to speak the language, but I was learning to look at a language and tear it apart, go deeper, look at all the root parts of the language and figure it out, write the rules and put it back together again, synthesize it and then teach to other people. I didn't realize that. That shaped the way I started looking at the whole world, hmm. because these indigenous. That my second job was to go all throughout the island of Mindanao, and survey where the indigenous peoples live, how many groups were there, how many language groups, and map it out an ethno linguistic map, and uh, figure out how many there were, and that took me another two years going all the way throughout every area of Mindanao I was held at gunpoint by the. Moro National Liberation Front, by the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, by the, you know, B.I.F.F., the more Islamic Freedom Fighters. And, you know, just, and we didn't have cell phones at the time. I would go up in the mountains, I would do my drive, I'd come home. My wife didn't even know I was going to make it home. Ended up being, we had 45 language groups on the island of Mindanao. What, like,
0: time, what year frame are we talking about?
1: Great, we're talking about 79 to like 85 is where the basics like wrote the Sabuano language program learned Tagalog first and then did the you know social linguistic map for all the indigenous peoples which endeared me to them right and then I began to try to build schools for the kids because none of the indigenous children had education now we're, we're you think about you know indigenous people groups you don't realize how many there are in the Philippines. There's about 14 to 17 million indigenous people who don't even have an identity, don't have education, don't have healthcare. That's, that's like, you know, imagine 17 million people that that's larger than some, you know, European nations, right? Countries, right?
0: Yeah. It's 17 times the size of Delaware. (laughs) It's 17 Delaware. Like that's fucking crazy. When you say no identity, you mean like not a social security number or birth certificate, like not, not known by the government or you mean like a cultural identity where they're so sporadic or isolated.
1: Great question. No, they have an incredible cultural identity and their language and their history is all passed down by, by, by word of mouth and dances and songs but the government never recognized their land rights Uh, and basically everyone in the philippines was a part of an indigenous tribe before the spaniards came when the spaniards came and took over and ruled with, with magellan you know for over 300 years they basically pushed the indigenous peoples up to the mountains out to the forest took over you know built their cities you know and then later on the americans came took over the Spaniards, but also took over the Philippines. And then later on, the Japanese came. So, you know, in, in, in the whole thing, the way it shook down, you ended up with multiple language, major language groups, but then, you know, over 100 indigenous language groups no all wonder. scattered throughout the country, and they had no rights because it all, it all came down to money. Like, whoever, you know, wanted to cut down the trees, the government didn't acknowledge their existence. So people living in the cities and the towns... Would get their birth certificates, get their voting rights, be counted in the census. But people who live outside, you know, civilization, like 17 million people, never got their birth certificates, never were granted land rights, never were given voting rights, never were counted as part of the census. So you would look at the, you know, CIA fact book or the Philippine, you know, government statistics and see that they say they have 103 million people where in reality they have about 130 million at least because none of the indigenous people are counted in those figures, and neither were the street people, you know, who, who were born in the streets, and, you know, that's millions of people. And some of the kids from the barrios, the villages, that weren't tribal but they're outside the city in the barrio villages, they, you know, they, they're, they're born with a midwife and, you know, in their village, and then the parents don't have enough education or understanding that, need to realize they have to take them to the city and get them a birth certificate. So these kids grow up in their little village, you know, and they go to school, in a little school, and then they get past sixth grade, they want to go to the city to go to get the seventh grade education. They go in and they say, where's your birth certificate? Like, I don't have one. Well, go home. You know, they don't say, how can we get you one? They just say, go home. You can't You can't come into the school without a birth certificate. So you're looking about, you know, 30 million people who aren't counted. And, and, and that was really good for the government because then the government could sell out logging concessions, mining concessions to big companies and make money, you know, off of these companies. And these companies will come in, just cut down all the trees. And once the trees are cut down, they start, you know, making open pit mining. Well, these indigenous peoples lived, they lived off of the of the forest. They were hunters and gatherers, right? Mm. So now their means of food supply is taken away. They don't have an identity. And in the process, it's like a 50-year situation, right? In the process of this time happening, the communist rebels came over from China, infiltrated the big universities in Manila and, and, and taught them about communism. Some of these ideologues came down to Mindanao, got guns, took the guns up to the indigenous peoples, gave them to them and said, if you want to get these loggers and these miners off of your land, here are the guns. So then they start fighting for their for their land rights, and then the government says that oh they're the communist rebels, the indigenous peoples. They can't even read. They have no identity at all. They have no ideology. They, you know they're just trying to get these people off their land. So then now they're getting killed. You know, in innocent you know innocent people getting killed in in you know by the government who thinks that they're communist rebels, and they're being exploited by the communist rebels, and they're being exploited by their own government. And, and businesses, and, and this is this is my life, right? So I was doing everything <laughs> I could at that point, building schools, helping them with healthcare, you know, translating the Bible for them, giving them a, a literacy courses so they could learn how to read, you know, um, trying to teach them how how to do business, you know, little small scale farming businesses, up until from 1979 to 1990. Then the Soviet Union collapsed, and a lot of nonprofits asked me to go into the Soviet Union and figure out what needed to be done. Well, by that time, my master's degree was in leadership and organization development. So I went around to Russia, Georgia, Azerbaijan, Tajikistan, Belarus, Ukraine, to figure out like what needed to be done. Like, what? Wh- where do we start, right? I mean, like everything collapsed. Fifteen countries were separated. That used to be a union. And the government, the communist government, had owned everything. Now they own nothing. So nobody had jobs.
0: Yeah, something so, yeah. you had said that was crazy that I didn't think about um with the with the fall, and maybe it's because it happened when I was so young. You had said something about as um the industry was set up so it was like individualized specialization where to actually build something. Parts were made only in one country, and then another country made other parts. And if those countries didn't know that they each made the parts, they could never put anything together to actually build. And sell, yes ex- ex- exactly so
1: you know russia would have this five-year plan of what they were going to produce and create and they wanted the 15 countries of the soviet union plus the satellite countries right outside like poland and czech republic and all that to be connected in hungary forever right they didn't want to ever have that split up so they would create factories that only made a piece of something no factory ever made an entire anything so like Chassis of the car would be produced way out in Ulan Ude, which is in like you know Buryatia, Siberia, and then it would be put on the train, Trans-Siberian Railway, and sent down maybe to Kazakhstan, right, or Uzbekistan, where they would put in maybe the wiring, right? Then it would go over to the country of Georgia and put in upholstery. Maybe it would go over to Ukraine, where they would you know put in the you know the, you know the, put on the frame of the body. Maybe by the time it went through seven different countries of Soviet Union, each factory putting in what they needed to put in and then it would go back onto the on the railway, end up back in Moscow, where it would be, you know, finalized, painted, registered, and then sent back on trains to all these countries to be sold, right? And so they were forever linked together. When the Soviet Union collapsed, nobody could make anything. Because every factory did like it had no more purpose. And and not only that, the border opened up and, you know, all these incredible products are coming in from Tokyo, <laughs> from Japan, you know, from Germany, Bosch, you know, Bosch tools, you know, and, you know, the dryers and washing machines from the States and from G- Germany and from Japan. And, and everything was made in Russia. So Soviet union looked like it was made in the sixties. Right. So no one wanted to buy anything that was made there anymore. And it could, nothing was being made there anymore anyway. So nobody had a job. And, and I walked into that and I just said like, what are we going to do? Like how are we going to help these people? And, I, you know, at that point in 1990, right, we're, we only have nonprofit and for-profit. There's nothing in between. And I'm looking at this, and I'm working for nonprofits, and, and, I, and, and you know, I, I put up a bunch of prayers asking for wisdom. I'm, I'm going around all these countries. They're asking for training. They're asking for development. And all of a sudden I got the idea, what if I could raise a few million dollars of nonprofit money – and start training institutes to create servant leaders because, you know, everyone's a dictator, you know, the dictators ruled everyone who was silent and no one knew how to lead. And we needed a generation of servant leaders. So I created in seven countries, 10 different servant leaders of training centers. We raised millions of dollars. We launched these centers of four-year education. We brought American businessmen and women over to train them with translators. And we started putting out, you know, startups but we didn't call them startups at the time and we had an incubator fund which didn't exist yet right so we actually created an incubator fund with startups for russia georgia Azerbaijan, Tajikistan, Belarus, Ukraine helping families to support themselves and then some of the graduates are starting orphanages rehab centers churches training institutes like kind of universities like we were just launching multiple whatever sector they wanted to work in but they had to go out with the servant leadership principal the insane thing was,
0: but no, well, I'm just curious why the servant leader, if you want to if you don't mind getting into a little bit of why the servant leader was the right call to battle the history or overcoming the dictatorship.
1: Yes, because like, you know, basically, I had learned in my life that if you get the right leadership, the rest will follow. If you don't have the right leadership, the rest have no one or nothing to follow. So everything is about leadership. And so, russia was leaderless everything was ruled by you know the communist party the kgb when that when when the soviet union collapsed the kgb became the mafia right and and then the oligarchs all became upper echelon kgb who snatched the land and the wealth and the factories and they're the oligarchs today right so Everything and then small pockets of mafia like started everywhere. <clears throat> and then the Russia Russia created a new KGB called the FSB. And 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 people were just like I mean the, the ruble went from one ruble is one dollar to one dollar is six thousand six hundred rubles, right? So everything people had saved for their entire life was gone in a week. People were hopeless. They were committing suicide. They were, you know, all becoming alcoholics. So then, you know, I realized that we've got to create a generation of leaders. And so I asked each one of these countries, like Russia, you know, Georgia, Azerbaijan, to Belish, Belarus, Ukraine, to send us eight people who they thought were top leaders we could train. And then we go back into those countries and launch these leadership training centers to equip their whole country. And so we were doing that, and um, it was worse than we thought. You know, when you start a training center, you have... You know, you have cognitive objectives, effective objectives, and behavioral objectives. And so, you know, we had these objectives that we thought were were simple, and the students couldn't even obtain them. For instance, like I wanted them to apply everything they learned. So we would have class from seven in the morning to eleven in the morning, and then they had to go for an hour and a half in a group of eight and discuss what they learned with application questions, right? So they could apply it. Well, what we found is that the majority of the people were just sitting there silently in the group not participating. And the few that were participating would get into arguments and even fist fights, you know? And we realized that under the Soviet Union, nobody was allowed to discuss anything. They were just told what to do. There was no discussion. There was no opinions allowed. So people didn't even know how to create an opinion, let alone voice it. And if they voiced it, how how could they get along with somebody who didn't agree with their opinion? So we were actually teaching these skills that they we didn't realize that every human being should have, right? But they didn't. So we were creating that. They became teams, they became leaders. They would they went back in their countries and started movements of leadership with you know with, with these um, you know startup businesses, startup churches, startup schools, startup you know, nonprofit, you know, rehab centers, orphanages. And everything was going great until the mafia decided that they should have a piece of it.
0: (laughs) So so the focus wasn't so much on, Hey, you're going to create a really cool bistro or you're going to create a really neat piece of technology. It was the focus is like more the social services that would like supplement government services.
1: No, great. It was, it was both that, that was like to, to, to come up with every, everyone's why, I mean, these countries were totally Uh... broken, right? And, and, and to say, you know, they, they, they came in with a, with a foundation of servant leadership principles that they had to learn, and then they had to apply it to whatever sector or industry they wanted to go into, you know. Gotcha. And a lot of them chose that they wanted to really, you know, give something back. They wanted to shape something in society, like, you know, a training institution, an orphanage, you know, a, um, a church, um, a, um, a rehab center. Or and some just did straight business, whatever whatever they decided, right? So they all were going out equipped, and they would all be functioning in their in their sector and their in their industry, and and it was going incredible. Um, and we you know we were doing things that got me in big trouble because as I said, the indigenous peoples, you know, in the on the tundra, you know, they live where all the gas and oil is, which is what Russia is, you know, living off of, right? That's what they make their money off of. And the government really didn't want them to be living there because they were hindering their progress. And so the government and Gazprom and companies like that were coming up with all kinds of rules and laws that would basically kill off the indigenous peoples. They they did to them what we did in the U.S. and Canada years ago where all the indigenous children were taken away from their parents and brought to cities along the tundra where they had to go to school, live in a dormitory, and can only go home and see their parents in the summer. So they would you know, ruin their language, ruin their culture, get them away from their parent parents, make them Russian, and and break up these in people, like groups like Yancy, Khanti, Komi, Selkoop, and many others all in the tundra. And then they live off of reindeer hide and meat. So they would come into the city off the, you know, they're nomadic reindeer herders, come into a town or city. Go to the market, sell the reindeer meat and hides, make some money, buy medicine, whatever they need. Go back on the tundra. Well, the government decided, like, to kill them off. We got to take away their, you know, their means of 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 uh, economic development. So they created a, a government agency that all the reindeer meat and hide had to be sold to that government agency. Could not be sold in the marketplace, and they're paying them ten cents on the dollar. Oh wow! And the people are dying. Then you know the average lifespan was forty three. 43 years of age, we came in, we set up legal entities to create co-ops that were legal where they could sell to the co-op and keep their families alive. So in many ways, I was kind of becoming an enemy of the state <laughs> and um, and realized that, I mean, you, what happens is when you're working at the grassroots level, right, you're really seeing the problems of the world that unfortunately, like people in the UN and the World Bank and governments they don't they don't see it they don't get it because they're not out there with the people they don't really see what's going down at the bottom level and in russia every city and town had an orphanage because of alcoholism and because of more women than men you know a lot of kids that end up without fathers they'd be be put in orphanages and at at the age of 17 they're told like goodbye right Now they've been abused in the orphanages. Now they're going out at 17. Where? Where are they going to go? They have no family. They have no money. And the mafia would take, you know, take a lot of the girls in. Human trafficking, prostitution. Human trafficking was rampant in Russia and the former Soviet Union. Some kids would be offered jobs in Europe. They'd be sent to Europe to get a great job. And basically they were being sold for body parts. Huge, huge industry. Body parts industry, hearts, livers, kidneys, I mean, stuff going on in our world, you can't even imagine with more than more than 30 million slaves, right? And so I look at that and say, how do we create a system, right, to stop this? It's got to be a system, right? And, and at that point, I had been working, like, I I, look, I started looking at all the churches, right, in, in Russia. And, like, take, for instance, one city called Krasnodar had 2 million people. And maybe seven or eight churches and they had two orphanages and every year about 50 kids are being released into the world with nowhere to go so i got the idea why don't i go to these churches and let people kind of adopt them as foster parents but they don't even need documentation because these kids are like free right they're just free right and you know they don't have to go through any kind of documentation and they come out in the world bang here's a family for you here's a family you never had and they had and they them get through college help them get a job and so I was just beginning, getting ready to launch that, and I became a huge enemy of the mafia because I was tearing into their revenue streams and the Russian government. And then in 2007, I had to come home to the States because the hit was on my head. And that was after 17 years in Russia and the former Soviet Union. Moved into my house in Nashville where my kids and my wife, we had set up a home there and i thought that's it i'm done i'm never going overseas again uh, i started my own consulting company called elevate global to help startups because i've been doing startups my whole life right and Can i thought that's we,
0: it just to interrupt you to go back for a second yep. cuz the 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 geographical scale and i'm trying to wrap my head around 17 years and all the different spots and I, i'm not good enough with the miles to understand the connection to the tundra and stuff but it seems like you'd been almost like jet setting all around Russia, right? And yeah, yeah, yeah. So,
1: yep, you have eleven time zones. Insane, eleven time zones in one country, right?
0: That is. You go, you go, you go
1: from Europe, like all the way from Belarus and Ukraine, like you know that are linked, like connected with Europe, all the way out to Magadan. You know, like you can look across to see Alaska almost, right? And and, and that's how huge Russia is. Eleven yep. time zones.
0: So yeah, no, but what, what really caught the attention is like when you had said just in passing that there was a hit put on you or that you felt unsafe and I'm curious, like how you got to, how does that come to you? Is it like the connections you've built with these other organizations or was there an actual action that you experienced that didn't work? No,
1: great, great question. Like for instance, like one of our, one of our graduates was a a Nyanets girl, right? From the Nancy tribe up in the Arctic circle and her... She was down in Krasnodar in our main training center, and her life was transformed. She became this incredible servant leader. Her name was Masha, Maria, Masha, and her brother was a Niyets leader, and he was a vice president of of uh, uh, Oblast, right way up north and above the Arctic Circle. Where, and once a year they have these Niyetsy reindeer games, literally reindeer games, like not just Santa Claus having his reindeer games, but they actually have reindeer games, right? And this vice governor came down to the graduation of Masha. He invited me to come up to this range of the reindeer games to meet all the nancy that exist on the planet in one, one location. And he invited me up and gave me this pass, and I flew up there in this crazy, you know, airplane. And when I landed, I didn't realize it was a closed city. Russia has these cities that are off limits to any foreigners, hmm. whether making maybe chemical weapons or whatever. Right. And so I fly into the city that's off limits to of a foreigner. And I am a foreigner, although I'm fluent in Russian. And right away I was drugged in by the FSB for, for um, you know, interrogation. And they were like ready to like, you know, throw me in prison or do something with me. And all of a sudden the vice governor comes in and says, no, I invited him. Here's his, you know, pass. And, and there I was. Right. And so, um, I was then invited, I didn't realize it, that the opening ceremonies where there were leaders, five leaders from the Duma, which is like the Russian parliament, and leaders from Gazprom and some other oil companies were all speaking at this grand opening. And then at the end, the vice governor gets up, says, our last speaker is going to be Brian Thomas from the Leadership Training Coalition. I have no idea that I'm supposed to speak, right? It's televised on national TV, fully in Russian. I'm I'm fluent in Russian, but like I need some time to create my speech, right? And I'm walking <laughs> up, creating my speech as I'm walking up there, right? And I, and I get up there and I said, you know, I just came from Mongolia, Ulaan uh, Ulaanbaatar, and outside of Ulaanbaatar, I went to this this huge monument where all these indigenous peoples were on the cement circle holding hands, from you know, and it signified that it was all the nations of the former Soviet Union that made the Soviet Union great. And I said, so I want to challenge you all to, to, to protect your language and protect your culture. Because God gave you one language and one culture and you're incredible people. And so you want to, you know, hold it and protect it. Don't let it be lost. Because as great as your nation becomes, you're a Nancy nation, then it will help Russia become greater as well. Right. But me saying and they all got up and they started clapping, right? And they loved me and I hung out there for a few days. Well, that got me in big trouble because that is not what the Russian government and Gazprom wanted, right? They're trying to destroy these people, right? And, and they're not even paying these guys who they're hiring in the work. They're giving them alcohol instead, right? And, and so, you know, I was doing things like that just to see the plight of the people, protect them, to help them, getting myself in trouble. And then the human traffickers basically hacked my email you know, and, and put up some things publicly to ruin my life that weren't even true. Nothing I could do about it. Told me if I if I came if I didn't leave the country they were gonna kill me. There was a hit on my head and then I went back to Nashville. And I basically, you know, my poor wife said, If this stuff is true, I don't ever see you and if it's not true, I can't be with you. It's too dangerous. So I went and lived by myself, you know, in Wildwood, New Jersey on my brother's condo and just kinda hit out <laughs> until I knew it was safe. Yeah. and you know at that point i contemplated suicide because really i did because i lost everything i lost everything in my life and had to be hiding out and didn't know what i was gonna do but it really was good it it put me into a place of like practicing silence and meditation just trying to get you know uh, you know control my own mind so i didn't go crazy in the process you know
0: While you're doing this, were you aware or cognizant that you were pissing these people off so badly? Or was it just like pure intentions? You thought good overrules evil kind of thing? Like, Hey, I'm just helping.
1: Yeah, no, good question. I, 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 that's all for me. It was just good over evil. Right. And, and, and I started to get the idea when like, you know, here I am in the country of Georgia you know, helping these people to build their country and launch some great initiatives. And Russia starts bombing Georgia, right? (laughs) They start bombing the city of Gory where Stalin was from and Tbilisi and Batumi. And there I am working in southern Ukraine and they want to start taking over southern Ukraine. I'm in Sevastopol and Odessa. Look what's going on there right now, right? That's been a vision for Russia for a long time. And I'm working on the border of Chechnya and Russia's having all-out battle war with Chechen. you know, it was kinda of like they're they're like, who's this you know, who's this American, you know? You know, that it would everywhere we go, he's there. Like, you know, and then they would pull me in and you know, and and say, you know, uh what are you doing? I say, you know, yeah I'm am am preparing leaders. And they would say, preparing leaders to do what? And okay, like, to lead. Well to lead what? Like they're thinking insurrection, you know. I mean like they had no concept of somebody giving their life to do something good to help people. It just didn't exist in the Soviet Union. Not at all.
0: That's what I kind of, it's hard to imagine. And that's why I kept thinking about the servant leader. Because when you talk about ideas, I've read a couple Russian novels translated in English, right? And some short stories and all of them have a real big theme of this like skepticism and closed offness. Like you don't put your business out there. And when you think of our like American economy and our American workforce, it's almost like employees are empowered more than the bosses at this point because yeah, you need yeah, them, yeah. you, you want to foster ideas. You want to foster creativity. That's how a company grows and thrives is internal research and development. And yeah. that's how you get your stakeholders because you have this institutional knowledge and you're able to nuance and, and make things happen efficiently. And you want to have weekly meetings where you go from the ground up and get feedback so that you can make better decisions as a leader. And that sounds not, but it, again, I, I didn't grow up in Russia. So I can't imagine growing up being like, if I speak up about, hey, you know what would really help is if these line workers had an extra ten minutes off every hour. Yeah, and then all of a exactly. sudden it's like, oh, you need time off? You're gone, done. Yeah. Like, well, can I go to HR? Do Do I get unemployment? Right. You know, how, about, I, how
1: about going? You know, how about going to Siberia? Get on the train, and you're going out to Siberia. Yeah. You're in a gulag, dude. You know. Yeah, that's just. It, it, Exactly what it was. We can't even come. So, well, you know what? You know what I learned, right? When you... I came from the Philippines where the friendliest people on the planet, right? You become best friend with somebody in a week to Russia where I would open the door for people and they would slam the door in my face. I would be smiling, walking down the street, smiling, and they like, oh, you're an American, right? I I had to get the smile off my face so I could look like a local, right? And... But what I learned is it took a lot to get through the hard exterior of these people because they had to protect themselves. But once you did, there's a Russian statement that would say, you know, we you Americans live according to your rationalization and your thinking mind. We Russians, we live from our souls. Hmm. And, and when you read Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and Solzhenitsyn and all these guys and in Turgenev, that's what they do the russians are very deep soulish people but they got this hard veneer and when you break through that and i remember um a a guy from university in south carolina um you know one of the guys that that asked to work with me was from this university and i was helping him to get settled in one of our our training centers and um he had to go back to south carolina and he was talking to the president of that university and the president knew me personally he said like like, tell me, like, what's going on with Brian in Russia and what he's doing, and how does he relate with the Russian people? And this guy, Carl, said, well, you know, I haven't been there that long to see all the results, but all I know is that these Russian people would would die for Brian. And he said, well, well really, why is that? Because they know he would die, Brian would die for them. And, and that's the way it is. Like, you don't have, you know, 25 friends, but you got a few that you would you would die for each other. And that, and that's the Russian soul. And they and they feel things deeply. And I would get in a I would get in a metro, you know, a subway in in Moscow, right? And the Moscow subway's got two hundred stations, you know, three levels deep. You know, it's incredible. And and about two and a half million people died building it. They were slaves of Stalin, sent down there as prisoners. Incredible beauty. Every station has got like, you know, statues and you know and and mosaic walls i mean just beautiful right not just like new york subways beautiful these are, every station looks beautiful it's incredible you got to go see it but um these people you know you get on the subway and everything's packed and everyone's reading a book hmm. i came to new york i get on the subway everyone's got their music in their ears right or they're on their phones right it, it, that's you know they everyone goes to the ballet everyone goes to the you know, symphony orchestra, everyone, you know, and I would come back to the States and say, what happened to us? Like, we don't have, we lost the arts. Mm. You know, everyone's like, what movie's coming out? Right. What kind of, how many zombies can I kill on my, on my, you know, my video game. Right. And the Russians weren't about that, but unfortunately we start exporting our very shallow culture onto these people in 1991 and bring them up, McDonald's and the golden arches and everything else. And like, we had, we had a decade to really make a difference and then we blew it, you Mm -hmm. know? And, um, so I, you know, I, I, this whole war is killing me because my student body, you know, is in Odessa and, you know, my, and, and, um, all Southern Ukraine and they're being killed. Um, my fellow, my, you know, my former students in Russia, They hate what Putin's doing. They can't do anything about it. Do you think any of them have anything to say at all? If anyone says anything, they're gone, right? And so, you know, we don't realize, you know, the freedom of speech that we have, you know, and the Russians are not bad people. It's their government. Just like the Chinese are not bad people. It's their government. And unfortunately, like, you know, we Americans are not bad people. But right now, our, our, you know, when our government can't even take credit, like, they can't even get up and say, you know what? We have put our country thirty-one trillion dollars in debt, and we take the blame. We're gonna do something about it. You know, hey, recession is is like you know is is mushrooming and is you know it's it's is you know ballooning out, and we, it, we take the blame. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna do something about it. We got some cats
0: too.
1: <laughs> what? I got some i'm i'm outside here hold on
0: here sorry right.
1: <laughs> i'm uh i'm in a i'm sitting outside so i can be peaceful and i got some cats fighting in the back anyway that was kind of goes with the territory what we're talking about right yeah. but you know uh, i i think what what i have learned living around all these countries is that i'm an american but i'm, I'm really not I'm, I'm a world citizen think about when you think about what do we have like 300 and 20 million people in our country or something like that you know I don't forget the in, in a world of 7 billion yeah so like what are we you know we yeah we're the world leader but we're like we're minuscule when it comes to how many people actually exist you know and and then you know I and this is one thing I wanna, I'm I'm going to say some radical things people may not like but I don't don't believe any statistics that you read i mean you know, the World Bank and the UN, and I love those people and I, I speak there and I work with them and they're great people. But, you know, when you read these statistics to say over the last decade, even Bill Gates, in uh, the last decade, we have cut, you know, we've cut poverty, you know, we've reduced poverty by 30%, right? I'm thinking, are, are you living in the same world that I'm living in, right? You know, just because the GDP of India and China has increased like, you know, big time, that that makes it look like the whole world is better off, but that's just the GDP of China and India. And none of it got down to the poor people, Hmm. right? So, so poverty has not been reduced. It just has not, you know, I, I live in that world. in the real world where it has not been reduced. And unless we, until we see the, what really is, right? We can't fix it. You know, if a doctor says you got cancer, you know, until you get that, you know, that diagnosis, you can't fix it until we open our eyes and realize like, this is how messed up we are. So we got to create a new system to fix that. Otherwise, if we keep on borrowing money, you know, to put ourselves in greater debt, thinking that we're America, you know, Dude, I, no, nobody can live without much debt. So we got to fix it. But anyway, yeah. Well, if you make up your, your
0: own money, if you make up your own money, you can right. And like, and <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. it's a weird side note, but talk about like fixing. I just I know gas prices are going crazy, and it's just a small little tangent that I can't wrap my head around gas prices spike up within whatever, days of the Ukraine war, right? Like $1. fifty a gallon, it's a 50% increase. Biden comes out um, depleting the reserves. It's gonna be the biggest market influx. We're gonna, st- and the gas prices have gotten even higher. And I'm like, how come that clip <laughs> is not getting blasted everywhere? And how come every single press conference, it is not, Mr. President, you said for the next, what I think it was like six months, I'm doing 300 barrels a day in order to reduce oil prices and limit gas. And what's happened? And it's like, how come that is just not every day to hold people accountable for their words and be like, dude, if you thought 300 barrels or if you thought that would do it and it's not, well then maybe, I don't know, fucking stop or give yeah, us an update exactly. about what's going on with it? Has Can you come out and give me a flow chart as to why it's not working? What is the breakdown? Who do you have that's figuring this out? Like COVID, you'd have so many updates about what was going on exactly, and you're like, why doesn't that kind of attention and detail trickle yes. into other issues because gas prices talk about a poverty issue for Americans, man. Oh a lot goodness, of people yes. don't have a ton of savings, and Uber drivers, the gig economy, truck drivers, like these dudes, school bus owners—they're on contracts our, and, for and, the and, year. And
1: our supply, our supply chains are broken. And, yeah. and, and and mothers and fathers can't even go out and buy baby formula.
0: Yeah, well, the baby I formula mean, th- is a whole American. other thing.
1: We're American. We're American. We can't produce enough baby formula. So, yeah. it, it, you know what? What to be honest, I come home. Cause I'm always overseas. Like you know, I fly 200,000 miles a year coming home, and when I come home, I think, "How in the world are we a superpower? I don't get it. Yeah, if we can't even solve these little problems, right? And I, and I think what happens is maybe there's 20 percent of Americans that are brilliant who run everything, and the rest of people that can't even speak English correctly. I go to Europe, and everyone speaks several languages. I go to Asia, and they speak several languages. My indigenous people speak four or five languages, right? Yeah. And Americans can't even speak one correctly, and yet we're a superpower. And our education, you know, I talk about working in the country of Georgia, and kids say, "There's a country called Georgia? Like I didn't know that. Like, oh yeah, and it's close to Dagestan. Where's Dagestan? Well, it's just, you know, it's below the Caucasus region. What's the Caucasus? Like, what are our kids learning in school? I mean, I, I mean, I. I it burdens me for our own country because we're just falling apart our education. You know what I'm talking about? Cause you're an educator, Dude, right? But,
0: I, yeah. It, it, that That's a complete <laughs> side tangent about how kids,
1: how Google
0: has just so corrupted. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. So you're right. I should so I get back
1: to my life. So here I am in Nashville. Right. And I create this startup, uh, my own startup company. Like I'm going to help startups. I go in and write their mission, vision, values, strategic plan. And, and this is where I want to mention like, like kind of my deepest passion. I'm talking with the CEOs and I say, look, you know, your your mission declares who you are as a company and what you do that differentiates you from anybody else, right? And your vision states this is where you want to go. This is what you want to look like in one year, three years, you know, five years. And, and then your, you know, your value statement, I mean, your strategic plan says this is how you're going to get there. is where you want to go in three years and strategic plan says this is how you're going to get there and then your value statement says you know in the process how do you do it what's important to you what values are important to you in the way in the way that you do it so i'm doing this for companies and then i asked the ceo like well what's your mission statement personally like what who are you what do you wake up for every day you know what do you want to what, what kind of difference do you want to make in the world what do you want to accomplish before you know where do you want to go before you're gone what do you want to do before you're done and the ceo doesn't have one he doesn't have his own personal mission statement and neither are the people out in the floor in the factory and you know those like and all of a sudden i realized that wait a minute like i started asking people in 24 countries what do you want to be when you grow up like i don't know i said dude you're 50. If you don't know, like who is ever going to know is your life, right? Mm-hmm. You're obviously created for some reason to do something that only you can do. And wh- what you know, what, what do you do that makes you feel alive, you know? And and, and, and what kind of difference do you want to make on the planet? And then people get frustrated with me and they say, look, look, dude, like I'm just trying to make it. And I would say, all right, well, what's it that you're trying to make? And I bring a right full circle. And they didn't know because it's just about how do I get a job to make enough money to keep, pay my bills, to keep my family from starving, to get my kids through school, to so that they can do something that they hate too, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it doesn't make any sense. And so I wrote this book called Make a Life at the time to help people, like, here's a challenge, now write your own mission statement. Here's your challenge, now write your vision statement. Create your own strategic plan. What's blocking your potential? Here's 10 areas that could be blocking your potential, like thinking thinking patterns, like, you know, emotion, you know, emotional baggage, et cetera, et cetera. So I had 10 areas of, and, and I printed that book and I started going around the country teaching workshops and thinking, this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life, consulting and helping people make a life, right? And, and then all of a sudden these tribal kids, indigenous kids from the Philippines start reaching out to my wife on Facebook Messenger because like I'm hiding out, right? Saying like, you know, tell our father to come back and help us develop our land, right? Because I was like their father, helping them build schools, mentoring them and their kids. And so a bunch of these 45 tribes of Mindanao, these kids grew up and became Datus or chieftains. And this war that had gone on for 50 years, you know, finally the president, Ramos, who had been a, a general, decides the only way to create peace in Mindanao is to give the indigenous peoples back their ancestral domains.
0: Is, And I'm maybe one of those Americans. The only thing I knew about Indonesia was, and it's probably not the same guy, but there was like a four-year period where basically if you got accused of being a drug dealer, you could just get shot and killed. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah, Philippines. So,
1: yeah, drug addiction had become, I mean, drug lords were becoming pretty horrible because... What happens is police don't get paid enough and so they get paid off by the drug dealers. So they're actually helping not all police, but there were enough police who were helping the drug dealers to push their you know, push their crystal meth. Crystal meth was being produced actually by Chinese, you know, factories that were they were building, you know, under Philippines towns. It it was pretty crazy. You know, and then you got the judges protecting the police, and then you got under that you got the politicians that the mayors and the governors protecting the the judges who protect the police. And, and unfortunately when president Duterte, you know, came in, it, it was pretty much a hopeless situation. Right. So the only way to kind of get rid of it is like his first speech was here's 60 politicians that are protecting all the drug lords, you know, surrender or I'm coming after you. Right. So it kind of became like, no, unfortunately, like you, you couldn't solve it in court, right? Because the judges were paid off, right? You couldn't solve it. So you you can understand if you're living there where he's coming from. From the west, it looks like total, you know, you know, lack of human, you know, human values. And yeah, it was like a human you know, rights violation. Human, human rights violations, and a lot of people innocent people were being killed. But at the same time, unless something radical was done, it wasn't going to stop. What, what really had to happen was something in between that, right? Something in between there, but it, it didn't happen that way. You know, so there were a lot of innocent people killed. A lot of drug lords were shut down. You know, unfortunately, China keeps taking over Philippine Islands, and they're so big and they're so close to the Philippines, and the Philippines doesn't really know if we as Americans will really protect them if China comes after them. So there's a lot, you know, and then America realizes, like, the only allies we have in Southeast Asia, we, we've, got, we've got Philippines, we've got Korea, you know, we, we've got Japan. And we, and we better take care of them because if we don't, you know, how are we going to counteract, you know, how are we going to counterbalance China? You know, and so it, it, we're, we're really heading, a, you know, China and Russia are buddying up together and Philippines kind of stuck in the middle of that. So now we have a, a new election where the son of the old president Marcos is just elected as president. I, I lived there when President Marcos was kicked out with people power from living nineteen, twenty 19, 20 years of martial law where he robbed, you know, billions and billions of dollars from the country. And now his son becomes president. And, and I hope, like, we're not going to judge the son based on the father. And we hope and pray that he's going to do a great job, that he's going to, like, really want to make his family name better. Um, but the Philippine people have just suffered over and over again, like the Chinese have, like the Russians have. And now like, we are, right? And so um, in all that, I, I, I really believe that it's private, it's, it's private enterprise that's going to solve the problems of the world. Never government. Government, I'm sorry, they're just, they're, they suck, right? They're all, they're all um, every government I've ever met, they just are about themselves. And like, you know, you know, why can't a president come in and say, we got the Republicans over here, we have got Democrats over here. If we don't start working together, we're never going to create anything. Instead, we're just so polarized, you know, maskers, not maskers, abortionists, not abortionists, Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, liberals. I mean, like everything is polarizing and dividing our country. And until we have somebody who can unite us, like we're going downhill. Unfortunately, we got to have somebody to unite us, you know?
0: So I guess why I brought it up and I didn't mean to cut you off, but I like that mindset and that acceptance. the Philippines one, the, like for someone to like literally get elected and say, this is okay to do slaughter and we get to slaughter. Is that like that, that culture? Is that part of Indonesia as well? Can you like associate the mind frame of things are so dire, we need to get radical and almost like gentrify, like kill?
1: Well, no, that's a good question. So, so like, we as Americans, we, you know, language reflects culture. This is a little bit crazy, right? In, in culture, when you look at American language, right, it's the actor of the sentence, right? Is always, like, the noun is the actor of the sentence. It's like, you know, we are, you know, like, I am the head of the sentence. I'm the guy making things happen. We think we can control the weather and everything else. We're You know, Asians are, Asians, like, they... They don't think they rule the world, they fit into it. Hmm. They are little pieces of a world that they can't control. I mean, the, the the basic is their basic, you know, belief was animism, where they wake up in the morning and they walk through their far their their farm saying, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, to the spirits that might be in their farm, that the garden that they might step on, who might inflict them with sickness, right? So animism, at the heart of animism is How do we appease the spirits to to get get them not to curse us, but to bless us, Hmm. you know? And and you don't push things. You just accept things as they are kind of a fatalism. Right. So that unfortunately, I mean, that is pretty much the basic Asian culture. Like every country is different. The Koreans are not like that. Right. The Koreans are, let's grab the bull by the horns and let's make something happen. Right. The Japanese have, have become that way. Of course, we helped to rebuild their country. But when you look at Indonesia, Philippines, Thailand, Vietnam, they're more, you know, that come from an animistic background, very fatalistic. Like there's not much we can really do. Right. We just accept it. So they and, accept, and, make
0: and that's part yes. of them accepting this mining culture, this land stripping culture. Yep. Yeah.
1: And, 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 and then, and letting exploitation happen forever. Exploitation, and so, that's and so yeah. here I am in, in Nashville and these kids, or who became adult chieftains are asking my wife to get me to come back to the Philippines. So in 2012, she used some of my mileage, took us back to the Philippines. I went up to the mountains and met with 60 different chieftains in this Caraga region of Northeast Mindanao. And they begged me, please, please develop our land. Please build schools for our kids. If you don't build schools for our kids that, the communist rebels will take them and make them child soldiers. So, you know, I get in the plane. I'm like, my wife says, you got to go back. And I like, how am I going to go back? I mean, like, if I leave my job in the States, right? How am I going to fund this thing? You know? And I kind of had a kind of a MMA battle with God, you know, and he put me in a, in a submission hole. I had to tap out. I said, I do not know how I'm going to do this, but I got to go. I mean, like, I mean, who else gets the opportunity to develop massive land tracts like this for people who've been exploited, you know, for the last hundred years and don't know how I'm going to do it. And I started. I started launching it, you know, right away. The New People's Army rebels, you know, came to me, wanted me to pay, you know, rebel taxes. I told them I can't do that, you know, because the project was for the people. And there again, if you're not on the ground with the people doing it, you can't come up with solutions like that, right? And so, I, you know, I faced the rebel leaders and I said, look, you know, I'm not afraid of you because I'm doing the right things. I'm building schools, I'm building businesses, I'm helping the people. But if you come in and make me pay taxes, you're just taking money away from your own people. And they're going to drive you out. So why don't you work with us instead? You know, be our security force. Protect the logs when they're coming down the river. You know, protect the product so we can get it out to the cities. You know, with, you know, be our security guards and we'll pay you, you know, a salary. And Dude. so basically bringing the rebels in out of the, you know, out of the jungles to become part of society, to join and become, you know, employees, not rebels anymore. So we're creating solutions on the ground. So I'm doing that. And, and then I go back and I find some really awesome partners in Nashville and New York City. And they take me to the World Bank and the U.N. where I speak, and the World Bank and the U.N. endorse what we're doing. And um, the vice president of the World Bank, when he saw our model of development, he stood up and said, this is the most impressive initiative I've ever seen because of scalability. Because what we're doing is the more I started working, more chieftains came to me. And by the time, you know, they they all live in like, think of like a a reservation, like an Indian reservation, right? Native American reservation. So in this little area of Carago, we have 26 of those. But they're all separate, and so we ended up raising up a three hundred thousand dollar rotary grant to bring together leaders from all twenty six areas and create them into a union, an economic union, so they could work together. And when they joined their land together, you got one point seven million acres, almost a million people, you know. And we've got about thirty seven verticals. When you come up, we have fourteen verticals of agriculture. We have coconut, abaca, cacao, coffee. You know, turmeric, ginger, fruit trees, like, you know, you know, vegetables. So we have all these agricultural, you know, we have we have minerals. These people they have a million, a trillion dollars of minerals in their land. They can't even eat. Hmm. They've got, you know, they have fisheries. Right. We've got, you know, we've got timber. We have three billion dollars of timber that we with them have planted over the last 20 years. Not the original timber, not the original like forest, but what's been replanted you know, with a plan that every time we cut something, we plant two more trees, right? And also carbon credits, where part of the forest never gets touched. It's, it's, it's to be protected for carbon credits. So we build all this in, it took five years to build the model, all the revenue streams, you know, and um, and that each of these, you know, uh, verticals, you know, or sectors of verticals gets blockchain in a supply chain, right? So the supply chain comes all the way from the field, all the way to America or to Europe, supply chains, blockchain. And um, we we're making great progress doing everything. And then COVID took place.
0: Okay. and um, I stay on the – why does the yeah. – because when I hear blockchain, I go crypto. Why does blockchain the supply chain? Is that just like an open source to uh, eliminate like people stealing?
1: great 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 question so with blockchain you know and, and uh, it wasn't me but part you know partners of my company who are brilliant in, in building this stuff the blockchain aspect what, what happened with blockchain let's say we have abaca trees right avocado trees um that's manila hemp it's the strongest fiber in the world we have 11 you know our indigenous people groups have in caraga have 11 million almost 12 million abaca trees ready for harvest it takes 18 months to bring to harvest, right? And and those trees last 50 years; they keep on reproducing. So, it goes in the ground, and it's blockchain. That tree, 18 months later, it it's harvested on that blockchain, and it's recorded. And the person who brings that to market, you know, the farmer, he gets paid on the blockchain. He gets paid right on his cell phone. Oh. And, and and then we we're helping we're we're building co-op grocery stores because they don't have groceries up where they live they don't have pharmacies right um uh, you know and so you we know we've helped them to form a co-op of farmers that has a grocery store a place to buy their pharmacy you know pharmaceutical needs for medicine because last year 18 of my students died of measles because there's no health care right and so they can get paid on the phone they can go right to the grocery store get the groceries get the medicines that they need not have to go, you know, sixty miles out to the lowlands to get exploited for higher prices, and have and make money off their, their own sale of all their goods, and then and then that blockchain it goes from the field to the to the harvest to the factory that's right in their area, and it gets on a ship on a, on a truck that goes to ship, and it gets shipped to the U.S. or Europe, and when it gets received and paid for, that's paid for in the blockchain as well. There's no room for corruption. If something goes wrong, we can trace where it came from. Everything is certified. There's no child labor, you know. And and then, and then the people who don't have an identity, right? We're getting them their birth certificates, you know, and and iris scans and fingerprinting, and a digital identity on that blockchain, so they can vote, have uh, voting rights, be a part of the census. No one can take away their identity, and. Um, and so that's all being blockchain. And eventually, we want to create a commodities exchange with all of all of the resources. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, back, back here in the States, I'm working with senators and congresswomen who are from the Seminole tribe in Oklahoma. And the University of Oklahoma is trying to create uh, a NAFTA for indigenous peoples. And then we'll connect them with our supply chains and Southeast Asia indigenous peoples. And we're trying to build some really
0: big things. What would they get? paid in the country's currency or are we talking like a cryptocurrency that
1: no that's a great question that's a great question so what, one of the things that we were kind of forced to do because it was difficult to find investment originally because everyone's afraid of duterte and the philippines and the now and you know so we created a singaporean company called Indigis, which stands for business digital currencies and we thought well what if we created you know, a kind of cryptocurrency, but it, it's backed by something like the dollar used to be, right? Can I,
0: you hit the, the mic, your your thumb maybe went over the name again. Do you mind saying okay. it?
1: Yeah, so Indigi, I-N-D-I-G-I, and you can look it up on indigi.earth, and it stands for Indigenous Digital Currency. So we set it up in Singapore, and we we worked with LDX, a London Derivative Exchange, to, to list it, as a digital securities offering. So it's a type of crypto, but it's a it's a security. It's backed by something, right? So we have the trillion dollar of minerals in their land. And then we went to an independent company in Singapore who who did all the financials for our timber, our abaca and our coconut and sugarcane, like the first four verticals, right? Only for the first five years and what it's worth and what the net revenue will be. And then that becomes the value of that currency, right? And then people can buy it, invest in it, only, you know, accredited investors. They buy that digital security offering, which gives us the money then to create, you know, more verticals, you know, more, to plant more cacao and abaca and coconut to produce more. And then every year there's net revenue in every one of those sectors and verticals, which then produces like dividends, right? That people actually get dividends paid on their, on their digital security offering, So it's really an advanced crypto that's not just based on usage, but it's based on income, like, uh, you know, things that are actually, you know, resources that are making money. So that's in the process of being developed. So right now, like some of our investors are coming in just to invest in timber or abaca or coconut. And then in the future, some people will buy the digital security offerings that will allow them to get yearly dividends, kind of like a mutual fund that keeps on growing and growing. And that at any time they can trade it out, you know, so they have, you know, secondary liquidity and they can trade it and feel safe.
0: And backed in essence by the asset. That's this trillion dollars of minerals, like and that's not the only, collateral. Yeah,
1: and, and, and backed by that and by the net revenue from the timber, $3 billion of timber, 11 and a half million avocado trees, you know, uh, coconut cacao with hundreds of thousands of acres of coconut and, and you take five. Products of coconut, coconut oil, coconut meat, coconut water, you know, and you've got, I mean, the revenue stream is, is a astronomical. And, and, and we, and we, and began focusing on things that would create money the first quarter. Like if you plant coconut, I mean, you plant, you know, uh, cacao or, uh, cacao or coffee, you got to wait three years for income. Right. But by, by, you know, by, by cruising, cruising, cruising revenue streams from the timber, and the abaca and the coconut that already exist that we've been planning with them for years, within three months you got a huge revenue stream in all three of those verticals. Investors are getting the money back rapidly, they're happy. They're going to invest more. Uh, and so, any, if there's anybody listening to this who is in the impact investment, you know, field that wants to get involved, like we, you know, we're offering investment, you know, investors opportunities for, you know, timber, abaca, coconut, you know, cacao. We have um, Howard Shapiro, the, the retired chief agricultural officer for Mars Company. You know, he's like 76 years old. He created the modern genome from cacao. He's now doing some awesome projects with the indigenous peoples in Papua New Guinea. He's on our uh, advisory board. And he's, he's encouraging us to, you know, to plant 100,000, you know, acres of, of cacao, you know, uh, because right now 87% of the cacao comes from Ivory Coast and Ghana and a lot of it's planted by little kids, right? And little families. So why not create it in a way that, you know, there's no slavery involved. We've got massive land tracts that we could do that on. So, you know, this is, these are things that we're developing and the indigenous people are stakeholders, right? And so we had to get the Philippine government to come on board and help train them. So the Philippine government now is working with us. Incredible Secretary William Dar, the secretary of the Department of Agriculture, and, um, and a lot of the team, like the, the uh, branch um, you know, agencies of the Department of Agriculture of the Philippines are helping to train the Philippine indigenous peoples how to plant avocado and coconut and how to create their nurseries, how to bring it to market, and they're working with us. So it's basically what we call like a public-private people partnership, right? We have the government involved. We have investors involved. We have markets that, you know, that buy it with the indigenous peoples who own 50% of the revenue stream you know, and it's our job to raise all the markets and the investment and the training for them.
0: Yeah. So then part of it too, is just finding now that we have all this product, who's going to purchase it and going to the companies. And hopefully it's a branding aspect of, do you want to be able to say that you can, that you're harvested ethically for say, like I've heard that about coffee beans. That was a big thing. I feel like 10 years ago, it was like, are you ethically harvesting your coffee beans? So you're trying to put that in there? Or is it also like a lower price point that goes to the companies?
1: It's a, it's a great question. And you know, what's amazing. Like we have, we have had, we have no problem with the markets. I mean, like the problem we found because, you know, we were just newly into this when we first started, was that, you know, a company like Mars or Nestle would say, like, we will buy every bit of cacao you can produce, You you know, Mars needs they need, they need 100,000 acres of cacao or 100,000 hectares of cacao just to produce Milo, which is like Ovaltine, just for the Philippines, right? Oh, and wow. they don't have it. So they got to, they got, they're importing it from another country. The Philippines is importing rice. They're importing cacao. They're importing coffee. They're importing everything except for mangoes, pineapples, bananas, and coconut. Everything else they're importing. But they have massive tracts of land, but under... But under President Marcos, the former President Marcos, and land reform, they cut all the land up, so nobody can own more than five hectares. We can't have mechanized farming with five hectares. So 32 years ago, the GDP of of the Philippines was 32% agriculture. Today, it's 8%. And the Philippines used to be an exporter of agriculture. Now they're importing everything. Only when they created the Ypres Law, Indigenous Peoples' Rights Act, and gave the Indigenous Peoples their land tracts, we just signed on one tract of land is 240,000 acres of land. It's contingent, right? Imagine we have 1.7 million acres of land that's contingent that we can plant as much of anything that the world needs on it. And basically in five years, have the Philippines be food sustainable, right? And exporting. And so we have no problem with the markets, but what we found out was that, oh yeah, you know, we could sign, you know, you know, you know, product orders, right? But you know, from, from everything we produce, but those companies won't invest the money. Mars will buy all the coconut, you know? Vitacoco will buy all the coconut water, right? Mars will buy all the, you know, but, but none of them want to invest the money into the land, so, but they just want to buy the, the market. So the, what, what, our, what, what our holdup was finding the right investors, right? Gotcha. And to say, we've got a guaranteed market, we've got the land tied up for 50 years, We've got you know all the resources. We just need you to come alongside and make a massive revenue stream and and a social, you know, return on investment as well. It's
0: and this might I don't know I I feel like I ask a lot of stupid questions often, but I'm wondering a 50 year contract like is that stable? <laughs> Do, can we trust that? there's not this weird revolution. And I guess you can never really trust, right? Like what is trust about what is tomorrow? Like philosophically, I get that. But, you know, like America has whatever court systems and government, I feel like a legal system that has precedents, but I'm also very ignorant to their country. And again, the only thing I'm associating with the Philippines is a five year news cycle ago where it's like drug dealers get to get killed. And the president's out there being like, kill people who are doing bad things. Basically. Yeah,
1: no, no. Great. It's a great question. So the, one of the advantages Philippines has is it was built upon the U S system. So they have, they have Senate Congress, you know, they have everything we have politically, they have, you know, governors, okay. mayors. And so there's no one dictator to rule everything. There's a real legitimate government and, and, um, and the, the government agencies speak English, right? Um, get out in the tribal areas, get out in the villages, english is not the word language being used but in their government functions they are and they're practicing like u.s legal system which is really good for the people part of that process was they declared epra law indigenous people's rights act which gave the indigenous peoples back their ancestral domains and that was that was done like it's it was a like a national you know law it cannot be changed the only way it could be changed it would, you know, there would have to be, you know, a national referendum. The whole country at the to vote against. I mean, it's part of the it's part of their constitution now that the indigenous peoples own their land rights and the rights to govern themselves as well. And so that was a game changer. And, and then so so they only the indigenous peoples of Caraga only trusted me because I had been working to help them for decades. Right. And and so they knew that I was, you know, going to help them. And so they signed with our company a 25-year, you know, renewable contract that we are the developers for them because they trust us and because no one else is going to give them 50% of the revenue, make them stakeholders, train them, help them create their land utilization plans, help build schools for their kids, schools where they use their own native language as well. So, like, we're, you know, registering them with identity. So we're doing all that. You know, and, and and empowering them. So we're taking like exploitation to empowerment, poverty to prosperity. It's what we're all about, you know, and and protecting their language and their culture and their land rights, um, and bringing in only the right. We've had a lot of investors that we walked away from because they just wanted to rape and pillage the land, and we weren't going there. Has to be the right people, right?
0: What so? Fifty percent goes back to them. Is the other fifty percent within? your corporation are going back to investors in order to encourage money to keep coming in for the infrastructure?
1: Yeah. So investors put their money in and they need to get a really great return on investment. So, and it is, I mean, uh, you know, impact investment started pretty much maybe about maybe 12, 13 years ago. Um, and about three, four years ago, um, a study was done by Wharton School of Business of 105 impact investment, um, uh, projects and they compare them with the return of investment for traditional investment. Right. And in 95% of all the cases, impact investment made a higher return on investment than traditional investment. you are talking about some radical projects, right. Where things have never been done before, but the thing that wasn't done, they didn't measure the impact. So now, this you know, the United Nations has 17 global sustainability development goals, right? And but me, no, no one is measuring them like not no one, but not enough people are measuring them accurately. So, so we're doing that right from the beginning. Every project we start, we start with a baseline of their education. Do they have running water? Do they have electricity? You know, you know, their poverty level, their edu- you know, their food level, you know, infrastructure, whatever taking all the goals and the needs and we're baseline them so we can show after two, three years of investment, what do we really what impact do we really make with that money? Not only what so what what what, what ROI was was made for the investor, but what social return on investment was made as well. And and so the money's got to go back to the investors. Some of the money's got to go back into keeping developing the project, right? So that we can scale out. Because the rest of Mindanao, we have eight million indigenous peoples who own 12 million acres, and they're all waiting for their turn. You know, they're watching us, and they're asking us, would you scale out to our area, right? And that's why the World Bank said they've never seen anything so scalable. We're talking about, you know, a million people, 1.7 million acres, scale it out to, you know, 8 million people, indigenous people, and 12 million acres, and now bring it to the rest of the Philippines. I've already met with indigenous leaders from Indonesia, Vietnam, Thailand, you know, uh, Fiji, Papua New Guinea, all saying we have land. Help us develop it. Bring us the markets. Bring us the training. Bring us investors. So the model we're creating, we want to roll it out really to the entire world, and then blockchain everything so we have supply chains. We've got to fix our supply chains. I mean, the fish that we're eating as 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 you know as Americans and Europeans, if we don't you know create new supply chains in ten years, we won't be eating that those fish anymore. We won't be having cacao. We won't be having, you know, the coconut, you know, we won't have anything because we've got to build the supply chains. And another another problem I believe that the world's gotta wake up to is we've got to stop thinking about developing, you know, mega cities and start developing our rural areas. Because, you know, mega cities are not the answer. They're the problem. These these people in the Philippines and Indonesia and every one of these in all throughout India, right? They they these farmers can't make much money, you know, and so the kids grow up and say, I'm going to go to Manila. I'm going to go to Jakarta. You know, I'm going to go to, you know, to do, you know, to, you know, to Delhi, you know, they all go to the city to try to get a job because there's no work in in the rural areas and there's no jobs for them and they don't have the talents. So they end up living on the streets, more pollution, you know, more rivers are being polluted and everything else. So if we can develop and then how are we going to feed the world? Right. So, why don't we focus on developing the rural areas so that people can stay in paradise where they live and make a good make a good living there and, and and strengthen their people and then build supply chains for the rest of the world rather than keep on building bigger and bigger cities. No, like, get the people, sorry, get them the hell out of the cities, get them back to their homes where they came from, give them good salaries on their farms, develop large-scale farms, you know, bring in co-ops so they can buy the groceries and everything right on site. They don't have to, you know... And 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 stay out of Manila. Stay out like Manila is like, it, I drive around six hours in a taxi some days. Traffic's that bad. Pollution is killing me. You know, up people up there, it's dirty. Like you know the the you know of uh, the the the, uh, the the river that runs through Manila is the dirtiest river on the planet. It just was registered as the most polluted river on the planet. Right? Why send more people there? And and that's the way it's going on in, in India as well. Indonesia, we need to have a focus of not mega cities, but let's rebuild our rural areas because that's where our food comes from, keep people back in those incredible living conditions that are better suited for your sanity as well. So there's so many shifts that have to take place in our world, and we've got to wake our governments up to that and the World Bank and the UN and rebuild our supply chains. Look, look what's happening. Like, you know, we can't even, you know, go to the grocery store and half the shelves are empty because of supply chains that are broken. So we got to go back to building the basic, you know, and, and one of the things that with America that I believe that if we look back on it, you know, America grew up, you know, we had a long, long time ago uh, an agricultural revolution, right? And bang, we became like like people who can eat well, we have a lot of food, we have healthy farmers. And then we said like, well let's start a manufacturing revolution right kids are strapped to factories and then we realized no we can't have kids working in factories but we still had a you know a manufacturing revolution and then we said no let's send these manufacturing sites overseas right we can build it cheaper in china and mexico right so so now we you know we we're bringing in our food from abroad we you know we we're, we're we're importing everything that's created like we sent our raw materials out Get it made overseas, bring it back to our own country. So now we don't have the factories. And then then we shipped as a service, right? And then we said, well, wait a minute, let's not do that anymore. Let's send our call centers over to the Philippines and India. And let's send all our service centers. Hey, let's have people, you know, build, you know, backgrounds for, you know, all, all the back coding and everything for websites can be done in India or, you know, you know, Ukraine or Russia or China. So so what do we do? What do we do? Retail commercial, you know, like what do Americans do, you know, we don't don't want to farm, we don't want to manufacture, we don't want to do service, right? It's like we want to buy. So we got to fix that. We got to go back and rebuild America, you know, ourselves. Anyway, that's
0: a little (laughs) radical, right? That's the scalability. No, but like that's, that's basically what most politicians try to do is they go to the small towns. And that's what I kept thinking about when you were talking about these underdeveloped areas is like, it's the death of the small town right? You lose your factory, you lose your mining job, but you want to have a better job or an opportunity, but nothing kind of comes along and kids, especially with the internet and knowledge, they now know there's opportunity out there. It's so much easier to know where opportunity is, which is the death of the small town.
1: It it is. And then that jacks up the prices. Like everyone's moving to Nashville or Dallas or Houston. And you know, prices of housing are double and tripling and people can't afford them. And then the people who were living there get pushed out, you know, into outskirts of the city. And and then these, like, little towns dry up and die, like you said. So, you know, what we're doing in Philippines has implication for the world, really. And um, hopefully through your, you know, through your program here, people can reach out to me, uh Brian Thomas at GPSS Global.com, which stands for Global Partnership for Sustainable Solutions.com. Um, um, and um, we just love to hear if anyone wants to get investment in it. Anyone who's working in another country wants to find out what we're doing, how we can help them in their countries. Um, we, you know, we, we're, I'm excited about the future because I know we're, we've hit on, this is a groundbreaking model that um is has got implications for for so many countries even in the medical area right so you, you realize that about four you know half of the world's half of the planet you know is does not have access to health care you know i'm not saying that they can't afford it they don't have access to it right so here in the philippines how do we bring health care to the 17 million, like 8 million indigenous peoples in Mindanao, plus all the village people, the barrio people? Maybe there's 30 million people on this island, or 20 million at least, who don't have health care. So we're looking at that, and a really awesome guy from Stanford University has built this telemedicine, telemedical platform, and he's going to bring it to the Philippines to work with us. We're linking it together with the Philippine Department of Health and some local hospitals there in the cities. And now you have about 50,000 Philippine nurses who are Philippine Americans now they live in America, but they still speak Tagalog or Subano or Ilocano and they love their country and their nurses. So we're asking them, work with the Philippine uh, Nurse Association of America to get you know maybe 5,000 of those nurses out of 50,000, 10 to donate an hour a month to serve for free on this platform to bring telemedicine to these people, you know, and if they, if it's really, you know, they could coach them through some minor sicknesses and healthcare training, how to take care of themselves. And if it's something really serious, then, then we could do it, you know, hook them in with like, with the hospital, you know, through, through telemedicine as well. And and then have supply chains for getting medicine up there if we need to. So we're trying to create models of telemedicine as well, because, you know, I, I have 18 of my students who died of measles last year because I wasn't there to get a medicine and there's no medical help there. And, and that's just one village, right? So we've got to create the solutions, you know, and we can create the solutions and, but they have to be systemic and it's linking things together, like link the Philippine department of health with some local city hospitals with Stanford university. And, you know, and this incredible model this company created for Telmed with, all these Philippine nurses, right? And they've never even thought about working together. So we got to go out of the box, link things together, never link together to create things that never could happen before and multiply. We've got to multiply, you know, to, you know, to really, you know, not make it systemic and multipliable.
0: And the government's really fine with this just to, because guerrilla violence was that bad? Like, I, I guess I'm going back to that. Like just trying to figure out why would they give away this resource? Why wouldn't they plunder it for themselves as a government?
1: No, great. That's a great question. Well, first of all, it belongs to the indigenous peoples, so no one can just plunder it, but they can exploit them with, you know, if, if they, you know, bring in money and they exploit them because people don't know, Jacket, they're not educated, or they're not educated like that. they can't read exactly. So, so we're a protection for them, but, but the insurgency is so bad that the government, like, loves the the fact that, you know, only when we create, you know, w- w- when we overcome poverty can we overcome insurgency, right? And so by, you know, by putting down, like, put down your arms for farms, right? That kind of program. And we, you know, giving houses to the rebels so they can surrender, get a farm, get a house, come back into society and, and be happy because now their kids can go to school. So by building these you know, services that the people need, that's really what the rebels wanted, right? They wanted their land protected. They wanted income. They wanted schools. They wanted food. And that's what what we're producing. Most of the people are afraid to go up there and do it. And we're not. We're doing that. And so, um, and also the only people that are trusted, you know, are us because we have proven ourselves that we're, you know, we're, we're providing schools. We're helping them to protect their language and the culture. You know, we're protecting them from, People are going to exploit them. We're making sure they're stakeholders, right? We're training them, we're developing them, and um, and so in, in ways like, for instance, by by taking these 26 indigenous areas, bringing down two farmers from each area, right? That's 52 farmers. The government comes in to this training center in you know, like where we're at in Butuan City, trains them how to do, you know, the timber, the abaca, the coconut, and food sustainability gardens. They go back up there, and each one of those two have to train 100 more farmers. In a year, we have 2,600 new you know, trained farmers that the government's a part of. The government's thrilled because right now, the government's ex- importing everything. By doing this, in, in three to five years, the government can be exporting all their agriculture and have enough food sustainability for the country. So we're working hand-in-hand with the government to, to go places to where they couldn't go didn't want to go and and they're working with us to help bring in expert training training materials you know and seeds for nurseries so it's, it's a project together that you know in three to five years we have zero hunger amount of nutrition in this area we have enough food sustainability and security for everyone now we can start exporting the government loves it because it's you know it's working hand in hand with them
0: And like, it's just so hard for me to wrap my head around insurgent violence. Like I I keep going back to African nations where I see children with like machine guns and like hotel Rwanda, you know, but that maybe it's my American elitism where I'm like, how can it be that bad? That you're willing to, and a selfish capitalist as well. That you're willing to give up this resource and the ability to tax. You're just giving away this resource as a government. It, it's hard for me to fathom.
1: Well, because because the government, like you know, basically they've had fifty years of war, which meant that they couldn't even get any of the resources out, right?
0: Mm. And
1: the resources really belong to the people who live there. Yeah. And so. By allowing them to develop the resources, they can pay taxes on it. Now it's going to be revenue for the government through taxes, and it's going to provide export. You know, exporting these goods, which is also an income for the government as well. So you know, mainly the government's just saying, you know what, greed didn't produce anything but war, and a few a few wealthy individuals, right? Yeah. But now we can provide, we can build communities, and those communities make the Philippines strong you know, we can start exporting goods, you know, exactly. we can stop the, we'll get the war to stop. So it's, it's a win win for everybody. Um, and, and, and that's why we created this uh, public private people partnership, you know?
0: Yeah. And it, I, you look at like, you think of a rebel, even just the word rebel just takes you to the point of fight to the death, fighting for a cause. And you forget like what the cause is, is most likely you want to, you want to laugh with your kids. You want to have a full yeah. belly at the end of the night. You want to have a warm bed, probably someone nice to sleep with in it. You know, like that. Just some real basic happiness, human intrinsically yep. that, human yeah. goals. Yeah. That, that's
1: exactly it. And, and and see, and the way the rebel rebels got created, it was it was it was because of greed. I mean, here these indigenous peoples are. I mean, think about it. Right now, all the climate issues and everything we have is because we. We, I mean, the indigenous peoples are the guardians of their forests all over the world, right? Amazon, Africa, you know, Asia, you know, and greed came in. Governments sold out logging concessions to companies, international companies and domestic companies who just cut down all the trees. Right. So now, you know, when you don't have that many trees, you don't have enough rain. Right. Because the trees bring rain. There's a whole system there, you know? So we actually have a guy on board who works with us who's a tree genetics expert out of, you know, he's a Filipino who has a doctor of genetics from Oxford University, and he can, he's a rainmaker. He can create enough trees at <laughs> the right altitude that he brings rain. And when you have more rain, you have more harvest, right? And, and then the rain, when you cut down the trees, right, you also destroy, you know, you destroy um, the... uh you destroy everything because now the rain used to hit the trees trickle down slowly you know and form the streams and the rivers that will come down and provide water to the cities right instead now the rain just it hits it's got no trees to land on it washes out you know erosion it causes flooding into the cities flooding goes into the you know, out in the ocean destroys the coral reefs I mean destroy biodiversity so we're not just talking about climate change right and so to rebuild that, you know, one of the things that we're doing is working with the government to create land utilization plans to say, okay, we have to plant 60% trees, you know, in this tribal area to bring back biodiversity and the right rainfall, right? And, and then, you know, we can only, by soil mapping, we'll plant only these, you know, this is what can be planted because of soil that's there. The rainfall, you know, the weather, you know, the weather patterns, the rainfall, where are the minerals, know where the bodies of water, create a master plan for each of these tribal land areas. And in the past, what had happened was companies came up, cut everything down. Now the people have no food. They have no trees. They get angry. Then communist rebels come in, give them guns. They get these people off your land. They start fighting for their land. Government comes in, starts killing the indigenous peoples, thinking they're communist rebels, but they're not. They're just Fighting to get these companies off their land, right? Because they're taking everything from them, and and now it's been years that they've been hiding out in the jungles, being haunted by the Philippine military, that you know that doesn't even understand that these people aren't rebels. They just want their land. Well, now the government's given their land, but the rebels don't know how to surrender. They don't know how to get back into society, you know. And and then there, there I was up there building these projects. And the rebels kept going to the chiefs and saying, like, we want to talk with Brian. And the Chiefs were trying to protect me and saying, No, you can't talk with Brian, because they don't want me getting killed, right? And I and I said to them, No, I have to talk to them. They have to be included in this whole project. And so finally I sat down with them. And I and I speak the language and I just said to them in the language, What do you guys want? You know? You or your or your fathers have been fighting this battle for 50 years. What do you what have you gained? Nothing. What do you really want? And they said, "We want people to stop taking our land. We want food. We want education for our children. We want an income." I said, "That's exactly what we're bringing. So don't fight us. Help us, you know." And and then we we proved to them, you know, we they wanted two hundred pesos per cubic meter of the trees we were bringing down, right? And I said, "I can't pay any of that," but people are robbing they're just stealing the logs out of the river as we float them down the river. How about you floating down the river in the little boats with the, with the, with the trees to protect them and we'll pay you 20 pesos per cubic meter that gets to the market. So now they have a job. We saw our problem with thievery. They get brought back into society. Now the government does not send, you know, soldiers up there anymore. And then we, you know, we use some of those, that timber to build down their houses. Right. And that it's their timber. They build their houses with it. And now they have farms. They have income. The kids get to go to the schools that we're building. And there's no more reason to fight. Right? And and and, then, and they become stakeholders in the project. So um, just before I left the Philippines, a guy named John Perrine, who is an incredible owner of a company called UniFruity, invited me to his house um, in Mindanao. And he works with Islamic rebel groups you know, over another part of Mindanao, far from us, and I sat down with leaders from the MNLF, MILF BIFF, and they they cried and said, "Would you please help us develop our land? We'll put down our arms. We don't want to fight anymore. We just want food. We just want schools. We just want development." And so, you know, that's what we're all about. And you know, what what I see, and I hope what can come through about through in this this podcast. You know, so many people are putting billions of dollars into nothing, right? Billions of dollars into all kinds of, you know, you know, climate reforms to certify this, to certify that. And we're saying, put the money down in the out in the real field where we're planting trees, where we're bringing back biodiversity, where we're creating land utilization plans, where we're empowering the people, stopping the warfare, creating blockchain supply chains, com- actually creating commodity exchanges. For the world, you know, and bringing people back into the community, and and bringing back the indigenous peoples as the guardians of the forest, you know, where we can bring back, you know, climate that needs to be where it needs to be, you know, uh, and and having rainfall that that needs to be there because we're we're building land back right, biodiversity is being rebuilt, and we're putting the people back in what they do great, like the indigenous peoples know how to manage the forest that we never did right. So um just need the right investors. We have a bunch already, but you know, more to say this is really what I want to get involved in, not only in the Philippines, but roll it out into other countries with us, right? So I appreciate you, Sean, taking the time to do this and um and and we we can let people know where how they can get a hold of us, how they can communicate with us, and um that would be a great thing as
0: well. Absolutely. And we'll put all that stuff in the um, all the contact info can go in the description. So if people just click super. the description, they're going to be able to find all the links and contact. Um, you'd given your email. Can I ask you one more question? Because I'm super oh, you can, curious. Yeah, it's the
1: manager one. I'm here. Yep.
0: Um, uh, the challenges of building, because like I'm trying to picture this super rural area, and then we keep saying things like you keep saying things like we're building schools, and I'm like, how like do you have roads? <laughs> like, <laughs> is electricity? there, are there, are there power grids? Like how? Oh my goodness. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That, that's my world. That's exactly, I mean, that is exactly it. So like the first, Oh, was a night in 2013 when I had to build the first school up there. Right. I had, I mean, we, you know, we decided, well, you know what, we're going to cut down the trees that are up there in the forest. Right. And build it right up there. But we needed cement. We needed, you know, steel bar, you know, we, half of our expense was spent. Was the, was transporting up the mountains, right? And the roads that existed were old logging roads, you know. When the when the loggers were in there, so they were pretty pretty muddy, pretty muddy, pretty messy, you know. We had to transport all up on motorcycles, you know. Trucks couldn't even get up there, you know. And then we got our first schools built. Then the government decided that you know because we're you know the government went to the government and then we said if we can produce this much revenue from these you know, plantations up in the mountains and these products, can you help build the roads so that we can bring this stuff down? We need farm-to-market roads. And so, you know, um, World Bank, you know, um, work with the governments to create another government agency that actually builds farm-to-market roads, and then we show them, like, where we're going to be building the farms and the plantations, and the government tries to, you know, bring in the money for the farm-to-market roads, but our eventual plan for like this in the future, right? Um, the, the indigenous peoples get paid the salary.
0: Like they bring the I think you covered it again. Brian. <laughs> oh, no, sorry, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs>
1: so the indigenous peoples, like they bring their harvest every day, they get paid their salary and they're living a good, living a really good life with a good wage. But also the revenue stream, you know, at the, at the end of the, of the quarter like, you know, from the net revenue, that's their share goes to the tribal clan, not to individuals, but to the tribal clan that owns that land. Right. And, and so what we're doing is helping them create a trust fund so that instead of like, you know, going to a few people's pockets, it goes into the clan. Like if there's 7,000 people live on that land, it goes into the fund that represents those 7,000 people. And then at the end of the year or twice a year, the tribal leaders, tribal chieftains, get together and, with the community, and they and they vote and they decide how we're going to use this money. Okay, we're going to build three schools. We're going to build one medical clinic. We're going to build some farm-to-market roads. We're going to build some you know some towers for for electricity, because then they get the responsibility of developing their own land because the government doesn't really do it, unfortunately. So, so we're putting that into the model as well. So we got like little mini nations within you know, the nation actually building their own, their own, you know, roads, their own schools, their own medical, you know, healthcare, uh, because the government just doesn't put the money into it to do it. And so they've got their, the raw, the resources to do it. Why not empower them to do it, to do that? So a lot of training, you know, and then we're putting into our whole system, like the, the schools that we're building for the kids, you know, each of the, you know, they have to learn how to do uh, faith gardens, food always in the home gardens it was one of their classes to build their own garden in their backyard with their parents so that they access have food every day from their own gardens that they can eat that is healthy. And then, you know, the, and the children that are, we, we, you know, every summer when they get in high school, they can do internships, you know, in the different businesses that we have in the tribe, whether, you know, cinnamon or, you know, abaca or coconut or timber, just try out, you know, different jobs that they, that they like, whether in high school to figure out, right after high school what they want to go into they already have a a job ready for them or those who you know exhibit like you know leadership and you know uh maybe school teachers you know they're higher they really like they think we could put sponsorships scholarships send them out to colleges but they got to come back you know and be a teacher you know or a healthcare worker a midwife you know because we pay for their college education that that's all being built into it as well so we actually are building, you know, the generation that can manage all this
0: to come back. I'm, um, I'm so curious. I don't even know if you know the answer to this question, but like, how do you get is power like coal driven? I'm used to power lines out here. Right. And I'm used to like conductors. I'm used to seeing wires in Delaware and then literal power plants where I don't even know how power is generated. I believe they're burning coal. There are smokestacks that go out. Like how does a light get turned on? In a... No, it's
1: a good question. Like, so the government, you know, we're we're working with them. So wherever we're trying to produce, like development, you know, we're saying, hey, create your your grid. Like, bring bring the wires out to there. Like, you know, let's bring some tell you know some some electric wires along the roads, you know, to, to out to those areas so we can do some manufacturing there. But unfortunately, a lot of the power that the whole government's using is from coal fired plants, right? A bunker fuel. Philippines does not have any nuclear fuel, uh, nuclear plants. Everything is produced by um, water, you know, could be hydroelectric dams or bunker fuels or a lot of coal fire plants. So um, one of my friends owns a company called Brisa, which is incredible. They're doing projects already in the Middle East and we brought them to the Philippines. And what their model is, is to set up, you know, wastewater treatment plant right next to the power plant. And then they, they they so the wastewater is coming in with all the nutrients, of of, of you know pollution the, the wastewater, and they take the stack, um, the smoke stacks from the coal fired plant, you know, and put it right into the into the wastewater. So you've got the CO two emissions going into the wastewater, and they infuse the water with algae, and the algae eats and cleans up all the wastewater, all the nutrients, and it's it's on steroids because it loves you know carbon dioxide right oh. so algae is multiplying rapidly and it's producing clean water from this from this dirty water and then it gets to a level where they flash it and the algae turns to fuel algae fuel at 7 dollars a barrel oh. and that algae fuel gets then retro fuel back into the coal fire plant to take the place of the coal and now you got $7 barrel algae fuel that's fueling the energy plant and clean water. And so um, they're bringing this model to Dubai and Abu Dhabi and now to the Philippines. Um, and so the vision is like, you know, within a decade or more, like we can, you know, change those coal fired plants to plants that are actually run by, you know, clean algae fuel.
0: Got you. I feel, I sound like such a schmuckish smuck ish American saying it, but like, I thought that was almost like a super bowl commercial from Exxon, like four or five years ago where it was this algae was going to power cars. And then I hadn't heard anything about it since.
1: No, it really is. I mean, it's incredible when you look at, you know, what algae does and, and what it can do and you're bringing in two negatives, right? Wastewater and CO2 emissions. And you're coming out with clean energy and clean water. Um, And, you know, Philippines is so crazy. Like the Manila, Manila has got like somewhere between 10 and 20 million people. Nobody really knows how many. Right. (laughs) And only, only 13% of those people are hooked in the sewage. Seriously? Seriously. Yes.
0: And so that's what goes into the rivers. Like, is it literally like, are you thinking outhouses, outhouses and buckets like they're taking their own crap and outhouses
1: buckets septic tanks that are not really secure and they're seeping into this into the Uh, ground and into the pasig river out into the manila bay and 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 the philippines you know they don't most of these poor countries they don't do the third stage of water treatment they just do the first two because the third stage is where they have to infuse bacteria and the bacteria needs aeration and and it and it kills all all the nutrients right takes what it removes the nutrients, but they can't afford that. Mm-hmm. So they're doing two passes and then pushing the water out into the rivers and to the middle of Bay, which produces algae blooms because the nutrients are still alive. Right. Gotcha. And, and so it's ruining, it's ruining their vacation spots. That's what's happening also in, um, in, uh, Abu Dhabi as well. And so, you know, um, these guys are, are bringing a system that, you know, it's, it's, it's one third the price of traditional wastewater treatment, and now you've got an income stream right gosh, from the gosh. waste from for clean water and fuel. So it's a no brainer. You know, it just takes maybe the first three years of investing in it. You know, um, maybe the first three years you are actually paying out, and then for the next thirty five years you are making a lot of money off of it, and you are cleaning the cleaning the planet at the same time.
0: What? What do they do for water? Like, I'm used to wells, right? So, like, in Delaware, you got two systems. You got central sewer and water, or you have your own well that somebody comes out, they drill, you get a water pump, it comes straight into your house, you can drink it from your faucet. If you don't trust it, you go through, like, a reverse osmosis machine. Done. Yeah.
1: The majority of the indigenous peoples like, the child takes a bucket, runs maybe a kilometer away down to the stream, <laughs> and then hikes back carrying those two buckets, you know, and they minimize the water. They try to capture rainwater, like, you know, in a little, build a little tank, capture the rainwater so they can, you know, use that as for showers and things like that. But well, what we're doing is like, you know, bringing in systems where we go to you know the nearest waterfall, right. And bring some pipes, pipe the water into, into, back to the, you know, little village, you know, and then have like holding tanks for the water so that, now the whole, you know, the whole village can have running water, right? Clean running water. So we're trying to create those systems for them as well.
0: So it would come from, you wouldn't be drilling into like aquifers. You would be finding surface level water that you would funnel or pipe into, create a holding tank. And right. Then they Sometimes, would yeah, there.
1: right. If they have like the rivers that, you know, and, I mean, and the waterfalls there, but it play, there's some places like if they're up in the mountains that we can't, you know, they don't have those. Then we we'll have to create. You know, we, we are also creating the wells. We're you know bringing the well drillers, you know, dig down hundred meters, you know, and hit the aquifers, and then they have running water forever, right? We're doing that as well in some spots.
0: Okay, yeah, I wasn't sure if that was an option because again, like I don't, I don't, I don't understand geography. I don't understand geology. I don't understand why there is water. 50 to hundred feet right, below right. my land and why that's clean. And why when chickens shit in Delaware, we got to make sure those nitrates don't filter all the way down. So I don't know how to transfer oh, yeah. that knowledge to other countries.
1: No. And, and that's why each area needs its own land utilization plan where, you know, here's where the water's going to come from. Here's how we're going to get electricity. You know, here's what can be planted there. You know, here's what we're going to do with the trees. These are where the minerals are. These are the bodies of water you know, a whole, a whole plan. Right. Uh, look at our cities, our cities don't really develop too many incredible plans because like we end up with roads that are too small, too much traffic, like, you know, so they, they need that. The only advantage is we're actually starting from scratch. Right. So we can build good plans from nothing. Right.
0: Yeah. With knowledge of what's worked and what hasn't, right. Like with foresight of, Hey, this will work. It. I mean, the concept really seems, I know there's a lot to it, but it seems real basic uh, as far as we're going to try generate jobs, which will hopefully decrease violence, give people a purpose, give people safety. It's like very Maslow hierarchy type shit, right? Hey, we want you yeah, to have food. Yep. We want you to have warmth. We want you to have comfort. And then from there, if we can generate revenue, we empower you to make decisions dem- democratically on how to use it. Would you benefit better from a third school, or do you think we should take that, whatever, a million dollars and extend into another track of land? Or right, invest right. in should we drill around and hire a company to see if there's an aquifer somewhere? Like that, those kind of decisions right. hopefully get made by elected officials that don't get corrupt and hire like their brothers to go out there and pretend to drill, <laughs> right? And no, then they get like
1: Exactly. Because one of the things we're doing is like we're honoring you know, the indigenous culture, most of the people don't realize how incredible they are, right? I mean, like, when we work in the Philippines, there's no crime up in the mountains Mm. because there's a cultural thing called social control. So let's say I'm your neighbor and I'm hungry and I steal one of your chickens, right? Well, then you go to the tribal elders and tell them about it and they call me and I sit in front of them. They give me a little judgment and say, you need to not only return that chicken, you know, one chicken, but give him another two because to pay back, you know, give him three chickens now, right. For the one you stole. Now, if I don't do that, I lose my place in the tribe, right. I lose, my, you know, I, I could lose my land, you know, I, I don't want that. And so why steal that chicken in the first place? Cause I don't want to lose my place in the tribe, my land, my heritage. So it's a really incredible system. You get out to the city. We don't have that social control anymore. It's the police. It's a you know, but now we don't even like them, right? So so there's a incredible culture, council of elders aside everything, these wise men who you know have grown into that through the through the centuries, and, and you know, and it's a unified decision. Like they're not gonna make a decision unless they all agree together on it. So there's some beautiful factors of their culture, right?
0: Yeah, and it's pretty organic. It's actually very similar. I've had some um people on like a couple African American not historians, but HBCU professors on the pod. And mm-hmm. they would talk about when you were growing up, and part of the beef with the police is the community stopped policing itself, where yeah, you had yeah. like that uncle that if he saw you acting foolish, would be like, dude, you don't do that around here. It's yeah, it's almost exactly, like a you exactly. don't shit where you eat concept. You would self-check and regulate, and it eliminated the need for government to intervene because Yep. You policed yourself and you respected the people who stopped you from doing ill to the community because the community value the, everyone knew exactly. everyone. And that's what's, that's what you lose in a city. You get autonomy exactly. and then I can hurt you because you mean nothing to me. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yep. Community is everything, you know, and, and that's what we're building from that. And, and then trying to see our world as a yeah, we are we are the community of humanity right we got to remember that somehow
0: yeah and, the, uh, and, and there's a, there's a, so there's
1: one other thing i want to mention before we go is um while i've been working over there living over there doing this project um my my wife and i decided that that well actually i decided i need to start rescuing some of these street kids right so <laughs> i called my wife up one night day and said like i got all these kids like who lost their parents and the tsunami and the typhoon and they're being, they're, they're being trafficked and raped, and, and, and I, we got to rescue them. And so, you know, my poor wife came over and we you know, took a bunch of kids off the street, bought land, uh, worked with some churches and some social organizations, and bought land, built a farm and a school. And we got an incredible Philippine staff of social workers and teachers. And that organization is called Humanility because uh, T.S. Eliot said we can only connect with the rest of humanity when we reach state of humility. So we connect humility, connects with humanity, humanility. Um, dot org, and uh, if people want to get involved in like you know kind of um, virtually adopting some of these kids and you know doing you know uh, Zoom calls with them, getting to know them, you know helping these kids, even going to visit them. We've had teams come over and visit their kids in the Philippines. Um, so that's a, another side thing that we've been doing. Uh, and, and in that we just realized that we, you know, we are the community of humanity, it's up to us, you know, we've broken it. We've got to fix it. All
0: of it. Right. Yeah. It, it, man, it's super interesting that you like this came this passion. Do you think the passion really came from your, the abuse you suffered through? Or do you think it was in you and you just happened to suffer the abuse?
1: Oh, that, that that's a good question I think for me like you know when I was going through the, the abuse like you know I would question like God, why does this happen to me like I'm a little kid right I don't understand right um, but somehow I get with the personality that I was born with right and the genes and everything else with that abuse rather than become a, an abuser I just became this empath I could feel people's pain who didn't want them to have to go through that, you know, who, who would like, okay, let me see what I can do to help some people. Right. But, but beyond that, not just giving some money to help somebody, like, how can I create systems that can make a difference? Like multiply systems that impact a million people or a thousand people or, or 300 people or 70 people rather than just one. Right. Like for instance, if we could build a school in a village where, you know, a hundred indigenous kids go to school, then those hundred children do not do not get taken by the rebels to become child soldiers, right? Now we've just saved a hundred by building that school there, and those kind of things. And so, somehow, I look at it and realize, like that abuse did some horrible damage to my soul, where I had to struggle a long time to think I was actually okay, right? Could I like myself? You know, my, you know, what kind of what kind of self image do you have with that, right? There's a lot of damage deep inside, but at the same time. I could understand and feel what they're going through, and that drove me and drives me to wake up every day and say, "How can we rescue more? How can we change more? How can we empower those who are being exploited? How can we bring, you know, prosperity instead of poverty? You know, we we've got to make a difference. It's not about like you know, you know, like what if I just went out and made money and bought things for myself? Well, then when I get ready to retire, I got to get rid of all that stuff because I can't. You know, I got to move into a small little house. Like, what's the sense of that? Like. Why don't I invest my life in something that really is gonna last beyond me, right? Knowing that when I'm dead and gone, somebody's world is better because I lived. right? Including my own children and my own family, my neighborhood, but beyond that, right? And um, and, and not only that, I also believe that we have so many brilliant people on our planet. If a bunch of them get their heads together, it creates something that we could never even imagine, right?
0: Dude, that, I mean, get the right people on the bus is the analogy that's pretty common in most leadership yep. classes. And, um, yeah. it, that that's the stakeholders that you've spoken about. Um, I, I know you had said like, Hey, you wanted to say one more thing, but I guess I would be a bad podcast host if I didn't offer, was there anything else? And I'm not trying to rush you or anything. No, Brian, thanks. But... Thanks.
1: Yeah. So uh, I, I guess I would say like, you know, uh, there's, there's, in the closing, just kind of three things, right? The first is that if there's anyone out there who wants to know more about the Global Partnership for Sustainable Solutions and Digi, you, you know, how, you know, if they want to get involved in investing in it, or maybe there's someone in the college, like, because um, one of our partners is a global action platform, is they're connected with 250 universities. So one of our visions is to start creating internships for people coming out of university who want to come over and work you know, in, in, in our projects and, and learn from that and get involved in that, whether to be agriculturalists or, you know, people involved in infrastructure or healthcare or whatever. You know, so so um if people are involved and interested in want to get involved or invest in it or you know or, or partner with us in any way, please reach out and we'll put those emails for, for that. If others if there's somebody who wants to get involved in virtually adopting some some of the kids off the street or you know coming over and volunteering some time to work with these kids you know that's humanility and then thirdly if there's anyone there who said like i don't know what i want to do with my life and i haven't figured, i haven't figured it out i don't know what i want to be when i grow up but i realize if they listen to this podcast that i want to be more than i am um they can write to me individually and i you know i can get them a digital copy of i'm rewriting the book make a life i can get them some workbooks to work through um, to help them figure it out. Because I do believe that everything inside of them is, they have, they just have to discover it, develop it, and then go out and do it. And then when they start doing that, they discover more who they are and develop that more and then do that. And they just become, just build their capacity to do more and more and figure out who they are. But, it, you know, that nobody listening to this podcast would end up just dying without discovering who they are, what they're supposed to do on the planet and making something great in their life, right?
0: Yeah, man, it's funny. A a perspective I've started developing is like this interconnectedness. And I don't know if I've ever believed it because I guess I hadn't spoken to a bunch of people who thought it, but if you believe there is this interconnectedness and if you believe you have preferences and desires for a reason, right? Like where does that come from? Typically people feel their best when they're serving and i don't know if it's like a rich guy hustle but if you look at dudes who get a ton of our people who get a ton of money they wind up wanting to use them a lot of that to help not yeah i mean yeah yeah they indulge themselves don't get me wrong they buy fucking yachts and then like bezos changes a whole bridge so his yacht can fit like you get (laughs) that but they also reach points where they really want to be philanthropic and like give back yeah can i it would just be one little like Fact check thing, and I do not mean this in an insult, is any way. Sure, if, sure. if somebody listening were to think, like, man, this is some fucking scam hustle thing, are there ways, are there particular things people can Google? Are there like ways to kind of validate, authenticate what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, and yeah, I really yeah. don't mean they that can, like in an insulting do. way. I just wonder, like, almost like course, a yeah. pre fact check thing to give people a heads up.
1: Yeah, one of the things they can do is is also another website we'll put on there is globalactionplatform.org, and there they, um, you know, they're they're one of our partners, and um, they partner with the World Bank and the UN, so we've got validation from the World Bank and the UN, and then also we created a three-minute movie for presenting to the World Bank and UN, and it's on that website on the Global Action Platform, under slash you know project slash Caraga. Initiative, and you can read all the articles there. And there's a three minute movie like with the indigenous peoples, and the you know explanation of, of the project is pretty cool. We did it with uh drones, so you could actually see the land and 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 all that. So that's on there as well. Um, and also, if anyone wanted to talk to some of our indigenous peoples, we can connect them with them as well.
0: <laughs> gotcha, yeah. Come I just on over with it.
1: No, good questions. good question. It's a good
0: question. Yeah, I Appreciate guess, it. In, yeah, in my head with like the crypto crash, and I know there's been like different crypto that are backed or were said to, and I was trying to look it up, but I didn't want to like disengage from the conversation. I know there was a crypto that wound up crashing because apparently it was backed by some currency. And then all of a sudden it found out that it actually didn't have that currency. So when you started talking about crypto, I didn't know if that would like trigger a listener to be like, oh, great, this is going to be some sure, sort sure. of money grab thing. And, you know, I'd encourage people if they are like skeptical, reach out and do your due diligence. Um, and hopefully people, if they're looking to do this, and I feel people do, especially now in America, we've come to that point where you're looking to make an impact. We're no longer just survive. So many people are not surviving. They're looking to thrive. They're looking to give back. They're looking to have purpose, do the due diligence, look into the company and the opportunities. And, um, if it fits you, roll with it
1: and and one of the things we've done is really work closely with the philippine government so we have endorsement by secretary of agriculture secretary of department of you know environment natural resources you know all the secretaries working with us endorsing us and you know and 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 um and and, you know and you can so you you can check with the government say oh these people are legit you know (laughs) because if you don't have the government on board you're not going to get very far right you've got to work with them Um, and that took a long time. It took, you know, four years to get all these government agencies to work together in what we call the Caraga Convergence Initiative, right? Getting the government agencies to work together is not an easy thing. Gotcha. But we've got it happening.
0: (laughs) There it is. (laughs) All right, Brian, man, thank you so much for coming on. letting people get to know more about you and And your passions.
1: I'm excited about it. And I'll, I'll text you the uh, email addresses that you can put on there. People can check it out. And the websites.
0: Awesome. Sounds like a plan, man. Have a great night.
1: Make a life and make a difference.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks to Andre Psyche for supporting the Getting to Know You Pod. Search up Andre Psyche on social media. Give him a follow just for the fuck of it. Dear listeners, if you've enjoyed getting to know today's guest, or just want to support this Upstart podcast, go to our Patreon. For as little as two dollars a month, your donation will help with all the costs associated with producing the Getting to Know You Pod. Don't forget the three free ways to support the pod one subscribe to the getting to know you pod two, friend and follow the getting to know you pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, three, go to Apple, write a review. And finally, if you or someone, you know, would like to become a sponsor of or advertise on the getting to know you pod. We would love to partner with you. We have a wide ranging global audience that would like to get to know more about your brand or business. If you're interested, just message us. See ya.